In prayer as we continue uh, working our way through the book of Acts. Heavenly Father, it's a joy just to see you at work in and around us, even in little things, just seeing young kids and, and, and adults just connecting and uh, having that church family. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you have called us into your family through the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Lord, it's such a privilege to be loved by the almighty God, even the one whom we had by nature turned our back upon and not given you the honour and thanks to which you were deserved. Uh, But we thank you that you lavish your love upon us. Uh, Jesus prayed that we would know that that you love us as much as you loved your own son, Jesus. Thank you that you've given us your word to instruct us, to help us to know the one who has set his affections upon us, that we might know something more of the beauty of who you are and the joy of walking in obedience with you. So by your spirit, take your word to work in us, form us, uh, change us, teach us and correct us, uh, that we might know something more of the joy of the identity you've given us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. I want all of you to be fat. How's that for a start, eh? I want you all to be fat. Now, some of you might think, great. I've seen some recent statistics. Sorry if I just wake up a baby. Seen some recent statistics that says that Toowoomba's right up there. And you're like, oh, great, Steve's just asked it. We're already excelling. It's always good to be known as a town that we're good at something. And you think, what on earth is Steve on about? Maybe he's got one of these great diet scheme things and he wants to sell it, sell it off. But in reality, I'm actually talking about weight gain. It's actually an acronym you often hear people talking about when it comes to looking at people who are good for putting into leadership positions or for being involved in ministry where it stands for faithful, available and teachable. Now, we're not talking about identifying leaders and uh, who is effective and good for ministry this morning, but we are talking about the topic of being teachable and why being teachable is a valuable thing. To some extent, the question of why is being teachable important should be reasonably self-evident because if you think, well, what does it mean to not be teachable? It means you're unteachable or colloquially we use the expression a know-it-all and I'm yet to experience anywhere in life where someone has spoken of another person as being a know-it-all and that has been a compliment now every single one of us when we hear an expression like that can probably think of someone that you've interacted with who would fit that description you might have even been it or you might even presently still be it And it doesn't necessarily mean that they are unteachable in every area of life. There might be some particular areas of life where they just won't listen to anything other than their own idea that's in their head. Anyone who's got married has realised that two people from two separate homes who've learnt two different sets of habits, they come together and they realise, my spouse does weird stuff. Why on earth would you do things that way 
It's because their parents did it and their parents did something very different and they'd never consider there'd be something else. Or it could be in your workplace situations where someone who's worked in the same sort of area of work as you, they've come to work for your company from another company and they insist that the way their company's done it, even if it's miles outdated and not a good idea, is the only way to go and your company must transform and become exactly what they want it to be. But a person who will never consider ideas other than the ones they already have will never grow in any sense whatsoever. If it's because they are wrong or or if it's just something minor where they are less effective, if they're unwilling to change, they will for the rest of their life be limited or a liability in that area. On the other hand, if they are teachable, there's opportunity for growth, to become better, to become more beneficial to others around you. But if you are a Christian, we need to admit we do not know it all. I don't know it all. Even if we knew every single thing that the Bible teaches, which I don't think anyone's got to that point where they've claimed that, or That's a lie. I'm sure someone's claimed. I don't think someone's actually got the point where they've reached that. You still don't know everything. Because we could think that the Apostle Paul, if anyone's going to have all the answers to everything, who's got it all figured out, yet when he speaks of himself and he's writing to the Philippians, he says, I want to know him in the power of his resurrection that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect. He says, now I want to know him in all of his fullness, but that's not my reality now. But I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. He's going to say, this is what I want in life, but I know I haven't reached it. We're, we're constantly pursuing to grow and to come to know Jesus more and more. Paul even goes on to say a few verses later, those who are mature should think this way. Christian maturity isn't not about reaching a point where you know it all. Christian maturity is really a sign that you recognise that you don't know it all. Because you're desiring and realising there's still more to learn. One of the most common expressions in the Bible for a Christian is a disciple. And a disciple, the meaning of that word simply means a learner. So a Christian should never be someone who says, I am not learning anymore or I will not learn because you are a disciple. Your identity is you are a learner. Because I can tell you when you're going to fully know stuff. Paul answers that question in 1 Corinthians. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now in part, but Then, which is the face-to-face, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. We don't know. The time when we will know fully to the extent to which we have been known is when we see Jesus face-to-face. 
Now, as we look through Acts and the passage we're looking at this week, we see a transition between what was Paul's second missionary journey and the third missionary journey, which includes two visits to Ephesus. Now, Ephesus, as you see on the map there, is part of Asia Minor, which is a significant factor because if you remember back to chapter 16, verse 16, God forbid Paul to go and preach the gospel in Asia. And now as Paul goes to Ephesus, the gospel is going to Asia now for the first time. It was not like a once-for-all gospel not going there, but it wasn't God's timing then. And as we read through our passage, we're going to see the gospel goes to Asia. We're going to see the strengthening of believers. And then we're going to see there is blessing in correction. So after 18 months, Paul has spent 18 months in Corinth. The longest stint that he's had in any of the places that he's had as he's established churches and brought the gospel to them. Remember in the early days there were some, res- some response things were starting to go okay. There were some initial signs. There was some hostility amongst the synagogue. But in a vision, God said to Paul, don't be afraid. I am with you. No one's going to harm you, to hurt you. And I have a people in this city. And emboldened by the promise that God's very presence, the Almighty God would be with him, he would not be harmed, but God actually had a people in that city. His ministry would be fruitful because God has people here. Open Paul's eyes to see that there are people in this city whom God has called before the foundation of the world. He stayed in that place for 18 months. And even though some rose up and wanted to bring charges against him before Gallio, God's word came to pass that no one would harm him. Gallio is like, I'm not touching this. I don't see them having broken any laws. You can deal with it yourself. And so Paul was not harmed in any sense and he continued to stay on there for a number of days, uh, we're told at the beginning of our reading. But then as he departs, he takes Priscilla and Aquila with him. Priscilla and Aquila, who had been working alongside as tent makers in Corinth, he now takes them along as ministry partners. But the detail I love is, along the way at Centre, Paul gets a haircut. Have you ever just thought, man, Steve, you need to send me a text message next time you get a haircut. This is important details. I can see why it's in the Bible. Let's, let's, let's all get haircuts and talk about it. Now, it says he got his hair cut because he'd taken a vow. Now, presumably, it's most likely a Nazarene vow, where the, the Nazarite vow, you would have your hair cut. You had 45 days to get into Israel, where you would actually offer up that hair. You would no longer cut your hair during the, the period of that vow, and you would abstain from all alcohol during that time. It was commonly used as a way of um, giving thanks to God for something that had happened, Uh, possibly if that was what Paul was doing for God's protection or when he said that he would prevent him from being harmed in any way in Corinth and, and God provided for him. Or sometimes it was used as a vow, as a way of seeking God's blessing for as he was seeking God's blessing for his future ministry endeavors. The specific reasons were not given. But it sounded a little bit odd, for many of you to think, why on earth is Paul taking a vow like this? 
This is the, the Paul who's kind of like really plays down all these people who are so strict on their adherence to all these Jewish laws and things, and he's all about, all about grace and, and faith. Why is he taking a vow? Well, what we're going to see is that part of his travels that we see today, he's returning back to the Jerusalem church where he'll be reporting to them and there's nothing wrong or right about whether or not he partakes in the vow, but there may be a sense in which there is a degree as where Paul is happy to become a Jew amongst the Jews and to live as a Gentile amongst the Gentiles, to be seen as being a devout Jew so that not be a hindrance to his ministry amongst them. And that vow requires him to return within a 45-day period. But while he's in Ephesus, Paul starts the same way he has in most of the towns which he's visited. He begins teaching in the synagogue, reasoning amongst them to persuade them that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ that they have longed for and were looking forward to. But unlike Corinth, he was actually well received. Corinth, there was hostility, And here in Ephesus, he was well received and they've asked him to stay longer and he declines. This is not really working out real good. First, he wanted to go there and God forbid him going to the area of Asia. Now, finally, he gets in there. They ask him to say, and he says, nah. Now, if you've got a King James version or a new King James, you'll have a statement in the same because he wanted to observe the feast, winter feast back in Jerusalem. It's not in some of the earlier texts. But also in light of this vow that he's just made, he needs to get back to, to Jerusalem within that 45-day period. So when he declines, it's not because he doesn't like the people in Ephesus or that he's unloving, but it seems that more that he has an urgency to return to Jerusalem. He's not anti the the people there in Ephesus. He says, if God wills it, I will return to you. I don't think he's saying, if God wills, because he thinks, well, in the past, God forbid me from coming to this area. But I think because Paul has a greater picture of God is his master. Jesus is his Lord, the one to whom he belongs to. Even a decision about where he travels, Paul himself is not the ultimate authority. I'm not going to just decide I'm going to go there. I'm going to only go there if that is what God wills to do. Sometimes we think someone's being a little bit pedantic when every time you ask them about, are you going to go to this thing or are you not going to go to this thing? And they say, I'll go there, God willing or Lord willing. And you think, oh, you're going a little bit too far. But The instructions James gives were these. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go to such and such a town and spend a a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while, then it vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin." Hang on, that's getting a little bit nitpicky. Does that mean that if you don't tack on the end of all of your commitments to things, God willing, or if the Lord wills that somehow you are being arrogant and sinful? 
I don't think it's so much you have to verbalise those words, not that there's any problem with verbalising those words. I mean, after all, someone could verbalise those words but still deep within their their own will and plans thinking, I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm just saying it because it's the Christian thing to say. But what would be arrogant, what would be sinful, is to think is that somehow that I am the one who ultimately decides everything I do and God's not even in the picture. That would be arrogance to say, if I say I'm going to do it, it's going to happen whether God wills that to happen or not. That would be arrogance. That would be presuming ourselves to be the ultimate authority and taking a place which belongs to God alone. So leaving the return to Ephesus in God's hands, Paul set sail. Now we speak of three missionary journeys of Paul. Sometimes there's a bit of doubt or confusion about where does the second one finish, where does the third one begin? It seems that most likely that verses 22 to 23 is where that transition takes place. Because of the language that's used there, it's not so clear just on a surface reading. It says, when he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all of the disciples. Now, most of us aren't particularly great at our geography. Some are. Caesarea, as you see it there on the map, is actually just on the coast there, probably about 50, 60 k's um, inland. You have Jerusalem. And even though Jerusalem is never specifically stated in these verses, that expression of going up and going down is all throughout the scriptures of speaking about someone going to and from Jerusalem. So it seems most likely that what Paul has done is he's returned back, he's gone up to Jerusalem to encourage the church to report back to them about what God is doing throughout all of the lands which he, Silas and Timothy have been travelling. And as he reports back to encourage them, then they also go and send him out. But it's important as we think about Paul strengthening the churches, we'll see where he goes after here, but there is a strengthening of the church in Jerusalem for them to hear and be encouraged by what God is doing in his travels. There is encouragement and building up of the church to share stories of what God is doing through through his people. So if God is doing things through you, or amongst the people around you, share it with one another. It actually encourages each other to hear that God is actively at work amongst his people. And as the Jerusalem church sends Paul back out again, on his return leg, back to Ephesus, he travels through a lot of the areas where he'd previously gone, preached the gospel, established churches, and he goes back to strengthen all of the disciples. Notice, strengthening all of the disciples, all of the learners. Paul never just establishes a church and says, great, you got it, you're on your own. He recognises that he's making disciples who are in a lifelong pursuit of learning. And I think that's an important detail. When you go through the book of Acts, it would be so easy to focus exclusively on the gospel going out to unreached people, planting new churches... But as you read your way through the book of Acts, you see there is a mixture of that, 
but also some very intentional strengthening, maturing, and teaching those existing churches to see them to grow up. And as you look throughout church history, any time where the church is exclusively focused on one or the other, it's never been a good or a healthy thing for the church. To focus exclusively on bringing the gospel to people who don't know Jesus without maturing the church leaves a very weak church, a very limited understanding of the gospel which they take out. But also when the church is all about maturing those only inside, if that is not propelling people forward to take that wonderful good news to people outside of the church, then you actually begin to question are they really maturing or are they just learning more stuff? So Paul encourages churches on his way back to Ephesus. And when he arrives in Ephesus, there's a man named Apollos who was a Jew from Alexandria. So if Athens was kind of the the centre of all things philosophy, Alexandria was the, the pinnacle of academic stuff. Philo was another student from Alexandria during the same time. Potentially, Apollos may have known him. But we hear a bit about Apollos in other parts of the Bible. If you've read through 1 Corinthians, you'll notice those times when they're all fighting over. One says, I follow Paul. Another one says, I follow Peter. Another one says, I follow Apollos. So later on down the track, he, he establishes quite a significant ministry. But at this point in time, while there's many good things to say about Apollos, He's lacking some degree of understanding. He's described as being an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, although he only knew about the baptism of John. So he understands the scriptures and he's got a good understanding of them. He's gifted in being able to communicate those things. But there's a little bit of debate and confusion. How much did Apollos know about Jesus? Like it does say that he taught accurately the things regarding Jesus. But the, the point of contention is what, how do we understand in verse 25 that expression, he was instructed in the way of the Lord. Who is the Lord referring to in that verse? Because it could be equally applied to God the Father or in the New Testament sense of the Lord being Jesus? Was he instructed from a perspective of the Old Testament? Say, for example, was he instructed in terms of God the Father? Was he someone who understood the Old Testament scriptures, but accurately taught from the Old Testament scriptures what the Messiah or the Christ would be like? But he only came to understand it up to the point that there was a a forerunner, John the Baptist, who spoke about one who would come after him, but was yet maybe to understand that Jesus was that one. If that was the case, it would make a little bit of sense of the next passage that Samuel will be looking at in a couple of weeks. People are being baptised with John's baptism, a baptism of repentance to prepare them for the Saviour, but not actually coming into salvation yet. Or are they saying he was instructed in the way of the Lord, meaning Jesus, which you would presume you'd at least be familiar with, his death and resurrection, 
but may not have been familiar with a Christian baptism. Either way, we don't know which way Apollos was limited, but what we do know is that to some extent he was limited. He lacked fullness of understanding regarding Jesus and his significance. He was a fervent man, meaning he didn't just know stuff. He wasn't just academic because he was from Alexandria. It was important to him. He taught with great passion. And as he's teaching boldly there in the synagogue, Priscilla and Aquila were present and hearing his teaching. Now, we don't know what were the limitations of his understanding of things, but here they were sitting under his teaching that lacked something. And that kind of pricks our attention to think, what do you do if you're sitting under teaching that kind of misses the mark? For Priscilla and Aquila, I think they give us an example of a, of a very wise whale to do with that. You notice Priscilla and Aquila, they don't kind of stand up mid-sermon and say, Apollos, you've got it all wrong. Let me explain the word to you now. People don't listen to him, he's got it wrong. They don't get up on their blog on PriscillaandAquila.com and write a rant about Apollos and how weak he is in his teaching. Rather, what they do is they take him aside, they speak to him directly, they don't talk about, they don't gossip about him to one another, saying, can you believe Apollos taught that? They spoke to Apollos directly, they spoke to Apollos privately and explained to him the way of God more accurately. See that? They didn't correct him in front of everybody. They didn't first start rumours amongst everyone else around them saying, can you see what, believe he said that? They went to Apollos and they did that privately with the intention of explaining more fully that he might come to a better understanding. Even that wording more accurately suggests that what he said probably was accurate but just lacked the, the complete, completion of understanding. But not only was it important to look at the way in which they conducted this, notice that it is Priscilla and Aquila together. It says, they, both of them, instructed him. I say, point that out because there are some who go to 1 Timothy 2.12 where it says, when Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And some will say that, Men can never, ever learn from a woman. That's not the context that Paul is writing to in 1 Timothy. He actually says, I write these things so you may know how you conduct yourself in the household of God, in the corporate gathering together. He didn't say that there's no way that a woman is capable or good at teaching or that there's never a situation when a man might learn from a woman. I mean, as Paul wrote to Timothy, he says, Now, you learned about the gospel from your grandmother and from your mother. So here, Apollos is corrected by both Priscilla and Aquila. He learned from the woman and from the man. On a Monday night, I learned from women in our community group and throughout the week from a woman who's called my wife. Her name's Sarah. That just sounded so so like an object, isn't it? My wife. A woman who's called my wife. Hey, my wife, can you... No. 
But while they serve an example as what is a good way to approach it, Apollos serves as a good example as to how to respond. Apollos could have easily said, don't you know who I am? I'm from Alexandria. And you are just tent makers. You, Priscilla and Aquila, have you got a kid called Miller? But all signs are he was grateful to be corrected. He actually considered it a joy to come into a fuller understanding. The reason why we think that he's responded that way is that the church sends him out as a missionary, forwards him off with a letter to the disciples saying, accept this guy, this guy's good. And that same man who once taught with passion but had an incomplete knowledge, now he's been given a fuller understanding, he's been sent out and when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed and he powerfully refuted the Jews in the public, showing that by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Now if if he'd refused correction to this day, well, he's dead, um, he would have continued to be very limited. He would have had a very distorted picture. He would have never understood the full beauty of the gospel and the importance. He probably would have never been sent out by the church with their endorsement. And it would have never had the impact in the ministry in which he had. So what? Unless you're a hermit, so this probably applies to people listening online because if you're a hermit you probably wouldn't turn up here this morning, you've probably experienced correction at some point in your life. And I want you to think for a moment, what is your default response when somebody brings an idea to you that that is different than the way that you presently think. Now, depending on your personality, it most likely is either going to be something where you think you appreciate the opportunity to, to grow and develop and to learn something more. But there are some of us who, at least at first, might seem a little bit offended. Like it might attack our pride to think, maybe I've got something a little bit wrong. Hopefully if that's your starting point, eventually you realise, but I'm a disciple, I'm a learner, I am still learning, let me actually take a look at this thing that's been presented before me. Because if you're a Christian, you're a disciple, you are a learner. You don't know everything. I don't know everything. Which means that there is no such thing as a Christian who should not be teachable. It's contrary to our identity as a disciple, as a learner. But what does that mean? Does that mean that every single time that someone brings a new idea to me that I just have to say, yep, I'll do that? Of course not. You'd be all over the shop if you were to to go that way. It doesn't mean you have to agree with everything that comes your way, but it does mean you need to be willing to consider, is there some merit to this? Sadly, for some people, you hear people say, I can't stand people who are unteachable. Which in their mind just means that, I can't stand people who won't come to my way of thinking. Which is often a revealer that they're an unteachable person and they don't like others who won't come and agree with them. Remember a couple of weeks back when we saw the Bereans as the gospel came to them? They were hearing things that were new 
foreign to them before that point in time, but they searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So if we are as Christians, we are learners, we must be teachable if we are going to grow in any sense whatsoever. Be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Our mind is to be constantly being renewed. If God has called us to be conformed to the image of his son, things are going to have to change because whether you agree or not, you and I are not the perfect conformity to the image of his son. If ideas come to you that challenge you, be willing to look down and search the scriptures to see if there's some merit to it. All of us will be shaped by what we grew up with, the church that we first began in. Sometimes things might challenge us. We might change our mind on some minor things, hopefully not on the major things, if assuming they were taught correctly the first time around. But don't be scared to do that. You'll either be, as a result, strengthened in the conviction you already had, or there will be the blessing of coming to understand more fully what you didn't understand right the first time around. That's actually a good thing. It's actually good to find out that you were wrong because it means that you're improved, you, you have been developed in a good way. What we see in Apollos was someone who was probably quite unhelpful in ministry with his present limitations that if he was unwilling to change, probably wouldn't have been the sort of person you would send anywhere. But how often do we think about people and think, no, those people, ministry, never. There's some areas they just haven't got it right. Rule them out. We're called to build one another up. Teach one another. Some of those people that you might think, no, rule those people out, through correction and examining the scriptures together, they might come to more fully understand those areas in which you had initial concerns. Don't just write them off. We're called to build each other up. But to be teachable is an important thing. Matter of fact, I'd say somebody who is teachable is probably going to be far more useful in the hands of God than someone who knows more stuff but is not teachable. We need to call out to God and God ask us and help us be teachable because that's our identity. We are learners. But also we need to call upon God and ask us, help us to teach others graciously. Not to go on a rant about somebody else, but to privately and personally talk to that person one-on-one with humility and with the desire to see them grow for their good. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I confess though, my initial response is to not take correction well. I thank you that you've softened me enough to at least allow me to think for that for a moment and then realise that no, I don't know everything. Lord, help us to be a people who will be teachable. There's no point us seeking you in prayer and in your word on a daily basis if we don't want to be changed by it. 
You actually chose us before the foundation of the world that with a plan that we would be conformed to the image of your son. You desire us to be teachable. You desire us to change. Help us to want to change. Help us be willing to change even in the areas that we might hold really, really dearly. Because you are worth so much more than our pride. And Lord, so we humbly surrender to your word. We surrender to your will. But Lord, help us to be humble and gracious as we may have need at times to correct others who are around us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.